Welcome, everyone. I just want to thank you all for listening to the show and supporting our growth over the years. I specifically want to give thanks to our Supercast subscribers who have been so kind as to provide monthly financial contributions to keep Health Unchained going. Some of you are longtime listeners, others are hearing my voice for the first time. Either way, if you find these conversations valuable and would like to continue listening ad-free, I encourage you to check out our Supercast subscription page in the show notes, where you can become members of the Health Unchained community. As my listeners know, I am obsessed with the intersection of healthcare and blockchain, and I will continue to create high-quality content that can help you navigate this strange and often confusing new space. Ultimately, our hope is that all healthcare stakeholders will benefit from the unique capabilities that decentralized networks can offer. The more people that believe in the potential of these technologies, the sooner we'll be able to break free from our existing broken systems and adopt a more peer-to-peer trusted decentralized healthcare system. One of the most important and challenging components of decentralized networks in general is ensuring credibility of participants in the network. You may have heard of digital identities or self-sovereign identities. These concepts are super difficult to implement and scale. Many teams, organizations, and countries are working to build models that individuals can use to prove who they are. This is especially true in the decentralized science space, where we need to be able to trust the scientists and the data that they generate. In today's episode, I speak with Mike Sin, who's a libertarian software engineer at CureDAO, which is an open source community-owned platform for precision health, and with Mike Elias, who built an interesting credibility layer of the internet called ideamarket.io. Together, the Mikes and I discuss some of the opportunities and challenges in the next wave of the internet, often called Web3. We also talk about the future of clinical trials and their own experiences with health and wellness. I really enjoyed this episode, and I hope you all do too. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we're not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to the Health Unchained podcast. I have two guests today who are going to be speaking about how decentralized science and credibility on the internet are really important things and how we can ensure that the future of science and research is supported by people that are saying truthful things, essentially. Let me introduce Mike Sin and Mike Elias. Uh, Mike Sin is a engineer at CureDAO, which you might have heard of before. And Mike Elias is the founder of Idea Market which you may or may not have heard of before, but it's pretty interesting. They have a token as well called IMO, which it helps drive the tokenomics of the platform. And we're going to dive deep into what that all means for DSI and healthcare. And uh, yeah, guys, if you want to quickly introduce yourselves as well, just so the audience has a good idea of who you are as well, we can start with Mike Sin. Hi, thank you so much for having me. My background's in electrical engineering and kind of industrial root cause failure analyses. And I had a bunch of different diseases like arthritis and psoriasis and depression and anxiety for decades and went to a ton of different specialists for each of the different conditions and took probably over 50 different drugs and it was still pretty miserable. So I kind of started applying the same kind of techniques that we use to solve problems for different industries using root cause failure analyses in my lab to figure out what the hell was wrong with me. So I started recording my diet and my treatments and sleep and exercise and everything else I could with lots of different apps and devices. And then along with my symptom severity, which varied over time, but I had no idea what were the primary factors exacerbating or improving it on different days. So after collecting a bunch of data, I just like exported it all the spreadsheets and then combined it and applied pharmacokinetic modeling and kind of causal inference algorithms and identified that there were numerous like factors in my diet that significantly uh, proceeded, significantly increased or decreased 
increased symptom severity, such as lectin intake that's in nightshade vegetables like tomato skins and stuff like that, and gluten intake. And typically, they consuming those after about two days resulted in an increased symptom severity. And then if I abstained from those, it took about 10 to 14 days before the symptoms would go away. So due to these lagging and this onset delay, I was able to go decades without ever noticing the effects of these components in my diet. And um, over decades of seeing doctors, not one ever asked me anything about my diet. So there's about a billion people with autoimmune diseases and mental illnesses, which are increasingly shown to be influenced by the immune system and thereby the microbiome and diet. Yet we eat about few thousand different chemicals every day in the 3.5 pounds of food in our diet. There's no like long-term research on almost any of them because there's no financial incentive to do research on any given additive. The FDA is cleared as generally recognized as safe. Whereas if it's a drug, then you have to spend 10 years and a few hundred million dollars to just take a few milligrams of it. Yet we get prescribed all of these chemicals every day without our knowledge and without any data. I've just been working on a project to kind of crowdsource this research and drive down the cost of identifying the effects of all of these things that we're already doing and find ways to help like the billion people that are suffering from a lot of diseases that can be influenced by this. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's important to understand that, look, there is so much data that we are generating every day. There's so many activities, things that we're doing that is not being recorded on our own. And we don't really know what's wrong with us sometimes. It's really hard to identify that. And I think doctors are not really train in that way. Even like our genetic information is not really part of a typical provider's toolkit. It's really not. Like they don't look at your genetics before they see you as a PCP or anything like that. So thanks for sharing that. And thanks for doing all that work to get all that data together and make it sure. make sense as well. And I'm sure now that people can benefit from the work that you've done. Mike, Elias. Hi, yeah. Thank you, Ray, for having me. I felt like that was a great intro, Mike, to... Thanks. Uh, prepared to talk about idea market too, because it seems like one of the large problems that you're solving is the low hanging fruit of scientific discovery. That there's so many big breakthroughs that are not actually expensive to realize, not actually expensive to implement and benefit from, but are stuck in this place where only a few people who have done the research personally know about it. And there's not really a good channel to scale that knowledge so that the public can benefit. Um, like if how, how many how many lives would be changed if a hundred million people knew exactly what you know about some of the causal features of these variables that you're taking into account on CureDAO. And that's the gap that Idea Market wants to close. Our mission has always been to build a tool to crowdsource credibility so that we're no longer depending on institutions like media corporations, major scientific for-profit journals or large institutions like the CDC, FDA, WHO, etc., which not only are very often very slow and administrative, but often wrong, often have conflicting incentives in terms of delivering information that's best for people as opposed to best for drug companies. I'm not trying to start political debates about corruption or anything like that. But I sense a lot of frustration in the general public about the huge gap between the best information in the world and the information that gets called common knowledge and the best information that gets legitimized. So what Idea Market wants to do is create alternate pathways for the world's best information to reach legitimacy in the public sphere faster. And the way we're doing that is we built a social network that allows you to post short statements, kind of like tweets, and then everyone can rate those statements to express their agreement on a scale of zero to 100. So if we take a discovery of Mike's or from CareDAO that might really help people and just phrase that as a statement and then also link to the research that Mike has done and have this little post, and then we can get experts in the field or even merely influencers who have the social power to draw attention to a thing and give legitimacy to a thing. If we can get enough of those kinds of people to express positive opinions on record, on chain about this kind of finding, it provides an initial batch of social capital, reason for trust and deeper investigation that can be assembled in a day or a week. And we don't have to go through all the rigmarole of institutional cooperation. Does that make sense? 
It does make sense. And I just want to use an example. So let's say part of Mike's research or part of CureDAO or whoever ends up discovering this idea, let's say broccoli cures colon cancer. Let's say if you eat a ton of broccoli, someone is claiming that it cured colon cancer. So I'm going to put that on Idea Mart. I'm going to post it and then I'm going to wait for people to either agree or disagree with me. I'm going to put my citations, any research I've done, any evidence or data or proof that I think argues my point and and just see what happens. So it's kind of interesting because this is sort of what happens over a long-term period of time in science in general, right? People take time to publish their articles and do their research and then other scientists in different parts of the world or whatever, either try to replicate it or disagree with what was found and have a debate. And that's how science kind of works. So this is in a way just more transparent. It's not happening behind the scenes with just some peer reviewers. It's more public is what I'm understanding. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. You can also basically circulate a post like a petition. It ends up kind of acting like a petition where you're collecting all this social capital in one place. And ultimately, as you mentioned, it is kind of doing something in a fast way that we're already doing in a slow way. Even after all of the clinical trials and RCTs and meta-analyses, as Scott Alexander pointed out years ago in one of the handiest infographics of all time, at the end of all this research, you're left with personal opinion about what all those mean. Like at the end of all the research and all the fact-finding and all the rigor, we're back at personal opinion. So idea market goes straight to personal opinion from day one. It helps improve the quality of personal opinion, but it starts and ends with that and uh, skips a lot of the middle and in order to fast track the low hanging fruit, the easy ones. So let's think about how the current healthcare data industry works and functions. I think a lot of the data that's generated is either from health systems or providers about patients and it goes into medical records and potentially there's some other information from other sources. And you can also think about social data that's going to like Google and Amazon and Facebook and all of them. And they're monetizing our data, of course, through marketing and, and all of that. But what is the future of this sort of data and how does that apply to what you guys are working on? I think the future of this sort of data, like that's probably the greatest value in Web3, the ability for one to own and utilize their data in a manner that benefits society generally, as opposed to a manner which is profitable for a particular entity. Because currently there are about 350,000 data silos that exist, whether they be digital health apps or devices or EHR systems. And it's all scattered. The best you can do with kind of like one aspect of the human is see some descriptive statistics or a timeline of what you've done in the past. But by combining and aggregating all of this data, we can ultimately determine like the precise effects of any nutritional supplement or food or drug on given subsets of patients and individuals based upon their genetic profile or microbiomic profile. But kind of the obstacle has been the prisoner's dilemma, whereby individual companies that hold this data currently see that sharing it, it's a zero-sum game where if they make it possible for individuals to access and share their data with other companies, that is a relative loss to them. It makes it easier, prevents kind of customer lock-in. There's actually been hospitals, like studies showing that hospitals like actively make it hard for you to export your health record because that means it's much easier to transfer to a different provider. But if we are able to create an organization or platform that monetizes, makes it possible to fractionalize ownership and then reward all of these silos for making it easy to share their data. There's a lot of value in the data. Currently, there's about $60 billion spent every year on these anonymized health records from Epic and Cerner. And health records are kind of terrible in that they're very infrequent, typically every few months. And then there's a telephone game of what you tell your doctor. It's not necessarily what ends up in your health record, as well as the fact that people can barely remember what they ate yesterday, let alone over the last three months. All of the data that currently exists out there, that's mostly like an Amazon uh, receipt purchases and Google searches and um, in wearable devices and all of this is far more valuable, I think, than the current health data that's being purchased. So I think the value is a lot more than $60 billion a year. But in aggregate, like by combining this data, the value is multiplicative as opposed to just additive. If we are able to create a much larger pie and then use like 
tokenization to be able to share the increased benefits of this pie with all of the data silos that are currently making it hard to export your data, then maybe we can overcome the prisoner's dilemma that prevents them from making it easy for people to share and access their data. And then eventually, we have also been working on a project called the Digital Twin Safe, where you can store all of your data and then easily share it with any other device. We can hopefully accelerate clinical discovery that way and ultimately uh, massively reduce suffering, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. And there are so many devices and so many different applications and platforms that exist now that we use to generate data. In five years and 10 years, there's gonna be way more. I mean, I imagine nanobot inside of you collecting protein levels, all different types of chemicals that are floating in your body, detecting that. And then hopefully you can use that data to know how to make yourself better, you know, and optimize your own health, right? That's like the idea behind Digital Twin. But we're not there yet, right? We're still like collecting, you know, if I wanted to report all the meals I ate in a day, I mean, some apps, you could take a picture of it and sometimes they make it easy if you order online, you can just add whatever you ordered on Uber Eats and put it into your dietary plan app. So there are some integrations in place, which is interesting, I think, but we're not there yet. Do you think that people are not really adopting what we're talking about? This isn't happening as fast because we don't have all the tools to make it easy. Like maybe when we all are wearing augmented reality goggles or glasses and we're going about our day, everything is recorded. So it's way easier to know the things that you're doing and the things that you're eating or the supplements you're taking that way, as opposed to remembering to write it down every day or note it in your app. What do you right. think about that? Yeah, one thing that I made previously was like a Gmail connector that would go and parse your receipts from Amazon. So you could automatically import your purchases of like nutritional supplements that way. And then the grocery delivery services, it would parse like shipped receipts and then import the grocery purchases. Lots of all this data kind of exists. It's just the the silo silo. Thing. And if we had like some good Google Glasses that could automatically do it, that would make it a lot easier. And then I was importing from Amazon for a while, but they try to make it as hard as possible for you to easily export. Like if you want to export your Amazon receipts, they say you go to their your account settings and they say, okay, we'll send you something, an email in like a month or two with all your receipts in it. Because it's all valuable marketing data that would be used by competitors, I suppose. But yeah, parsing emails is currently the easiest way to automate it. And one thing that I'm desperately waiting for is like some kind of smart toilet that will analyze all my metabolites and stuff like that. That exists so, now, actually. Yeah. I've seen that out in the market. I don't know how good they are, but that's definitely, I can share some links like after that. Great. <laughs> yeah. And I get the idea of data ownership in the Web3 world, right? No one else can stop you from sharing it, using it, things like that. But what about privacy? So all this data is very private to us, to the individual, right? I don't want everyone knowing what I'm necessarily eating or what supplements I'm taking. I mean, in most cases, it's not a big deal, but some people are more private and maybe they don't want to share everything. So is what you're building privacy centric? Is it privacy in, like native? How does that tie into the application yeah. for both for CureDAO? And I'm also curious for idea market, I feel like it's less about privacy, more about actually transparency. Currently, like everything that we do, follows all the HIPAA compliancy requirements. And I've been looking at lots of ways to kind of decentralize. Currently, it's just like a tradition, like the data storage is stored in a traditional database. But I've been looking at ways to decentralize the storage. There's not really a great one that's like super GDPR compliant because you have to have the right to delete or the right to be forgotten. And if you put it on, I was encrypting data, some of my own data, and putting it on IPFS using ceramic, then using this thing called the Lit Protocol to, to allocate access to specific other wallets like your doctor or something. That would probably not be legal in Europe due to the inability to force all of the nodes to delete your data. And one alternative is to like spin up all of your own IPFS or ceramic nodes on IPFS on AWS HIPAA compliant servers, but at that point it is no longer decentralized, so you kind of lose any of the decentralization benefits, and then you add a lot of computational overhead because it's much slower to access data that way than it is through a standard relational database. There's, I think, Ceramic is working on integrating a Ceramic node into like the Brave browser and maybe Firefox, one that could then possibly store all their data in their browser and then synchronize it between their own devices that way. There 
there's this stuff called federated learning and homomorphic mm-hmm. encryption. And there's another project called Weave Chain that's doing a lot of good work on this. They have a Docker container, so you would run one of their nodes on the same server next to your database. And then like researchers can provide it. There's like an integrated Python Jupyter notebook where researchers can enter machine learning algorithms and run data on, run algorithms on the raw data that's in the database without having it leave the premises and then only receive the outputs of the analysis. I do that to some extent currently, like in our app, we can analyze studies directly on the person's computer and then we can aggregate only the results. So it's the results that we publish on the Journal of Citizen Science consists of like apples eaten and arthritis pain severity or something. So it's just Mm -hmm. the aggregate typical change from baseline for thousands of people as opposed to like making any of the time series data available. Yeah. And so that brings to mind the Journal of Citizen Science that I was looking into that CureDAO also offers. And that sounds like something, by the way, thank you for that explanation. I feel like all my developer listeners or chief information officers who are listening probably loved your explanation. So thanks for that. But in terms of the Journal of Citizen Science, we have these crowdsourced, aggregated pieces of information about health and activity or supplements or diet or whatever it is, all being shared. At what point is it so good that we'll start discovering like things we never expected to discover? Like I feel like there's hidden secrets that we'll be able to uncover that typical clinical trials and things like that we're not able to. But in the aggregate, especially when you incorporate genetic information, we'll be able to find some cool things about either superfoods maybe or super supplements that affect a certain type of person, but not everybody. And then that can really open some interesting doors. What do you think about that? Yeah, it depends on how fast we can get people to cooperate and share data. So we're trying to make CureDAO's infrastructure as highly composable as possible so that anybody can create a machine learning algorithm and then monetize it however they want to. Similar to the way WordPress, was, which was originally developed just as a blogging platform, but it had good documentation. So 59,000 plugin developers created a ton of different plugins that make WordPress usable in a wide array of use cases for like e-commerce and physician scheduling and and all these different things. So we're trying to make CureDAO composable in the same way and then additionally make it easy to share and reward the individual and the data silo for sharing the data. So currently we have data, about 12 million data points or measurements from about 10,000 people and we use that to generate several thousand different studies. Where do these individuals come from? How do they hear about it typically? We've been working on it a long time. It's just a word of mouth. We haven't really done any marketing, but yeah, I've been working on it for a number of years in my spare time. And just over time, it kind of accumulated slowly. Even though we have data, like tens of thousands of these studies on the relationships between various factors and symptoms, so the data is very broad, but it's very shallow for any given specific supplement, like some specific brand of a vitamin D supplement and inflammatory pain, we may only have a few participants. However, the data exists today to have tons of participants if they were able to easily share it. And then the two barriers are just like getting access to all the existing data, which I think there's enough in existence to generate studies with far higher statistical power than we currently have. There's also plenty of room for improvement on machine learning algorithms. It's an ever-evolving field. So yeah, and with what Dolly 3 can do and all of these different technologies, I think there's massive potential if the people who are developing these amazing algorithms could apply it, could have a large database of data to run it on. So Mike Goliath, in terms of how can we use the concepts or infrastructure of something like idea market and apply it to the tens of thousands of people who have put their data into CureDAO? How do we ensure that the data or the insights that are gathered from CureDAO's analytics, and I know that there might be different types of models and different insights come out of those models, but in general, if someone's making a claim like supplement from company A is is just not good or doesn't work, I don't know, I guess it's sort of like an opinion as well as facts, because it's facts for them. How do we get to the bottom of this? One of the things that is inevitably going to happen as CureDAO and solutions like it grow is that discoveries that are disruptive are going to be made. If someone has spent $100 million developing 
a pill for something that it turns out you can eat broccoli and get the same effect. The, you know, the investors aren't going to be excited about that. And this is a historical phenomenon like you have in other industries. You've seen it too with electric cars being invented by the original Nikola Tesla, maybe 100, 120 years ago, and even before him, perhaps. This, you know, happening at the same time as the rise of the oil barons and the Carnegies and Rockefellers and all of that, we end up kind of delaying adoption of electric cars by over a century. And it's not because we didn't have the knowledge. It's because the social environment and the political environment was kind of engineered to make only one solution socially acceptable and available to the public. What Idea Market is trying to do is kind of blast open the gatekeeper doors between obscure genius and the rest of the world and the public and the gatekeepers. As Mike discovers the magic broccoli, what I want Idea Market to be able to do is to show how many of the people you trust believe that there's something worth paying attention to here. Because as institutional trust dwindles and falls for various reasons, we're expecting that the opinions of 100 people or even just 10 people that you trust will outweigh in your mind the opinion of one institution or two institutions that you don't trust. Like how long is it going to be before Tim Ferriss and Balaji Srinivasan and, and who else, you know, when they say something is true, that matters more than whether CNN or the FDA says something is true. I don't think that time is far in the future at all. So we'll need something like Idea Market to make sure that the discoveries that Mike and Kyrgyz make aren't pigeonholed and, and kept separate from the public or kept socially unacceptable for reasons other than knowledge and discovery and advancing what's available to the public. Because it's unfortunately not as simple as discovery. We also have to make sure that people that we trust are giving us the best information that's actually available. And that's tough. I think if you just think about like the things Elon Musk tweets and people trust that pretty quickly and even the institutions try to protect consumers like the SEC is trying to protect consumers from investing in Kim Kardashian's Ethereum Max coin or whatever. I'm not promoting any of these coins, by the way. I did not financial advice. Please don't invest based on anything I say or we say. But the point is here, these influencers or these people that we may trust, and maybe when you say the 10 people that you trust, it could be like family members, friends, or people that you've known a long time. So it's more in your close circle. But people are also going to trust their Pope or other people that are sort of very popular and they just have a tendency to trust them. Idea Market through normal use basically builds a public database of personal opinion. You see what everybody has said about everything throughout all time and it's all time stamped and you can kind of see who believed what at what time. And all that information is on chain. So you can sort the opinions by any on-chain metric you like. For example, if there's a DAO that is, has a bunch of great scientists in it, you can say, all right, show me all the opinions of these DAO members on this and this and this scientific topic. So the, the group of people whom you trust is left entirely up to you, the end user. You can select a group of 10 friends or a group of 10 tech Twitter influencers or a DAO or an NFT or you can make your own NFT and pick your own set of people and filter them, filter their opinions by that NFT. So it's really open to being analyzed and sliced and diced in any number of ways so that we can figure out who really deserves trust on which topics so that their judgment is what drives public knowledge instead of institutional judgment. Are you afraid by any chance that it might create some sort of echo chamber that we may already have? So people will just agree with each other and then you'll have the opposite group or disagree and then there'll be like two truths in a way. <laughs> Is that a, how are you mitigating against those types of risks? Sure. In the internet world that we're in, echo chambers are going to be there because they're kind of a psychological path of least resistance. It's comfortable to be surrounded by things you agree with. And so we're naturally going to gravitate toward that. And there's not really a way to fight that head on. However, People have a genuine interest in the truth. It affects their lives. Whether something is true or false can make the difference as to whether they quit their job or whether they pay for something expensive or whether they move or whether they are take special health precautions. Uh, truth has material impacts on people. And because of that, there's always going to be a demand 
for the world's best information. And over time, even if there is division of opinion about things, there's always going to be a reason for the more accurate opinions to sort themselves out. An idea market just provides the rails for that to happen faster. It's not that we're never going to be wrong anymore. It's just that we're going to iterate a lot faster. Is there a benefit or is there sort of a reward if you agree on something today and then in a year it's proven to be true? Is there like a, oh, you win something because you were right or something like that? How does that work? There could be in the future. In, in, there's nothing inherently built in for that right now. However, what we do want to have happen is that when there's a controversial topic or issue or an important one or a crisis that everyone kind of expressed their opinion on idea market at the, at the beginning so that in the hindsight of history, we can look back and see, hey, whose opinion was insightful back then and who was just following trends. And so if, for example, when COVID was just starting out, the media was downplaying it, saying it'll never make it to the United States. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. It's not going to affect your life. But there was a subset of technologists on Twitter. I am particularly thinking of Balaji Srinivasan, who was really ringing the alarm bell on it early, like in January or February. And the New York Times didn't really freak out until March 15th or March 17th. And so when I talk about flattening the curve, like how many lives could have been saved if we had listened to Balaji instead of waited for the people whose jobs it is to actually give us the best information. What we want to be able to do is query who believed X at time T. And the more important the issue is, the more your name you'll want to have on that list, because those are the people that the public will turn to in the next crisis. That's really cool. I think that's a cool concept because you'll create a whole population of individuals with, I don't want to say social scores, but they sort of have like a credibility score in a way. We just need to make sure that we think about that very ethically. And because there's going to be people that are, are just wrong a lot of the times. So they're not bad people. Their opinions are inaccurate. Yeah. So there just needs, needs to be a lot of thought about how to, you know. Um, I'm interested in what dangers you're, you're alluding to there. I mean, yeah. Well, I just like if there's someone I meet and then I look them up on Idea Market and it turns out like most of their opinions are either wrong, have been proven to be wrong, or I don't agree with either. I'm probably not going to trust that person's next opinion. And I think that could be harmful for the relationship with that person might not really grow as much as the relationship with the more credible person. So there's that. And that exists now, though, too. It's not like that doesn't exist now. People with many publications and citations are trusted more than a researcher who hasn't published anything yet for better or worse, right? <laughs> it's really more important that people who have ambitions of public influence participate than that everyone does. Everyone's welcome. But uh, yeah, it's, it's really mostly making sure that the largest groups of people place trust in the places where it's most deserved instead of just the places with the biggest brand names and the longest institutions. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. For today's corner, we'd like to address a sad fact in the United States. According to a Wikipedia list, as of October 25th, 2022, there have been 582 mass shootings with 604 individuals killed, including the shooters. A total of 2,380 people have been wounded, including the shooters. This year has been a record year for mass shootings in America, and it does not seem to be getting any better. Although many attribute shooter motive to serious mental illness, studies have shown personal issues such as combination of acute life stressors, anger, and nihilism contribute to a shooter's motive. Gun policies and the criminal justice system in general are also factors that play a part in the probability of mass shootings. On October 22nd, a man fatally shot two Methodist Dallas Medical Center hospital employees because he was angry with his girlfriend, who had just given birth. The man, who was on parole and wearing an ankle monitor, accused his girlfriend of cheating on him. Dallas Police Chief Eddie Garcia said at a news conference Monday, quote, In my opinion, this is a failure of our criminal justice system. A violent individual such as this should not have been on ankle monitor and should have remained in custody, end quote. So it's easy to claim after the event that he shouldn't have been allowed to visit his girlfriend at the hospital. One would think after serving six years in prison for aggravated robbery, the shooter would be more aware of the consequences of his actions, and he just wanted to be with his family. 
But this is a very complex social and political issue that can't be ignored. The victims are not only the murdered or injured, it's their families, their communities, and in this case of this example, all of the employees who work at the hospital. We need to protect our healthcare workers, teachers, and children. Although this news corner doesn't have anything to do with blockchain technology, it has everything to do with social stability, security, and human nature. It's unlikely that we'll ever end all violence in our world, but we should be addressing and studying some of the root causes of violence by educating children about the importance of community safety, gun safety, and human morality. Open public policy and local education regarding gun control can be tools to help mitigate future tragedies and increase trust in our communities. To learn more about this unfortunate trend, check out the episode show notes. And now, back to the conversation with your host, Ray, and guests Mike Sin from CureDAO and Mike Elias of Idea Market. I think Idea Market has massive potential in accelerating global knowledge. And it's also important to consider like there's been a lot of research on effective crowdsourcing and methods of doing this. And there's one great book by James Sirowicki called The Wisdom of Crowds, where he exam- he looked at a ton of different case studies of effective and ineffective methods of crowdsourcing and came up with a number of rules. And one critical one that is like the importance of independent, the aggregation of independent judgments, as opposed to like informed judgments. So you have in the case of the U.S. political system, we elect a president and typically there's a large segment of people, like the majority of the population is not entirely enthusiastic about either the Democratic or Republican parties, but everybody, there's a narrative that if you vote for anyone else, you're like throwing your vote away, I think that most people are going to vote for a Democrat or Republican, I pick from them. And it's kind of analogous to this phenomenon with these army ants that will typically, like in order to make their way back to their home after foraging for food, will like follow each other's pheromones. So you have a big long line of them. And somehow, sometimes the first army ant is an idiot and he will end up curving around and then following the last army ant. So they're all walking in a big circle. It's called a death spiral. And they will just walk in a circle until they die of either thirst or exhaustion. And I feel like it's very much the same situation like our political system is. Everybody votes out of the 300 million people in the U.S. Like Donald Trump was probably the smartest and most qualified person to run the country. And and then our other alternatives, we keep getting these Democratic candidates that all voted for the Iraq war. Half the country was opposed to that. They're obviously less intelligent on foreign policy than probably about half the country. So there's 150 million better people on that yet because we're all just following each other instead of making independent assessments about and maybe we think that Ralph Nader or somebody else's would be preferable. We don't vote for them because we instead follow each other. So I think like hiding the opinions of other people and trying to minimize those as much as possible when idea market is getting its, when people are making their assessments about the validity of a claim may be valuable. There's lots of kind of examples in the wisdom of crowds about how effective crowdsourcing can be at coming up with more accurate answers than even the best experts in a field. Like one example is they give is like who wants to be a millionaire where they have if you don't know the answer, you have several options like phone a friend so you can phone the smartest person that you know on a given topic and ask them the answer and consistently ask the audience, even though it's just a bunch of idiots that went to see who wants to be a millionaire in the studio. They're on average like right about 86% of the time versus like 60% or something for the, the phone a friend thing. And then there's lots of other examples like Wikipedia and this one about guessing how much this mule weighs, et cetera. But there's a societal biases. So if you ask people like how much you think we spend on foreign aid, then the average person says like 10% or something in the US, where in reality, it's like a fraction of 1%. So if you take a histogram of all of these different guesses, 
and you look at how many people guessed, like 10%, how many people guessed 5%, how many people guessed 1%, you'll see like a hump around 10% because that's what most people think. There's like some kind of bias. I don't know where they get this, but it produces the... So crowdsourcing in that case, if you just looked at everyone's answers and who assumed that the most people guessed right, then you guessed the wrong answer. However, if you look at this histogram, you'll see a tiny little peak around somewhere under a percent where it doesn't go kind of along the curve. And so it's like peaking out. And that comes from the experts. From There's like a small number of people who like actually looked it up one time and kind of it kind of peaks out and the rest is kind of like noise. Instead of just like simply taking the, in that case, just like simple crowdsourcing, asking everybody wouldn't work. But if you look at the histogram and then and find this peak, then you could find the right answer using crowdsourcing that way. And then also with Mike's suggestion about prior accuracy rates and stuff, if you can weight people's previously accurate, previous predictions accuracy, then you could also overcome that problem as well. Yeah, it's important to consider the local maxima, not just the global maxima in these graphs. That's fair. You know, what? something that always interests me is the tokenomics of all these different types of protocols and, and platforms. Can you talk a little bit about the function and use and utility of IMO on Idea Market? And then maybe, Mike, Sin, if you have like a comparison for DAO as well on how tokenomics works there. Yeah. Sure. In order to explain IMO, it makes sense to explain a little bit of the monetization features that are in the platform in general. First, it costs... There's a one thousandth of an Ethereum hosting fee, and that's about a dollar thirty right now. And what's the purpose of that? You would say that is to fund the Idea Market Protocol Treasury to fund the growth of the ecosystem and development and all of that. Just kind of a pool of funds that will eventually be group managed, community managed, but for now, it just goes toward development. I feel like it also prevents from overuse or spam or things like that too. In a way, I guess it's not that expensive, but if it was totally free, people could abuse yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's good to have more posts and more activity, but that income also just guarantees various things. It, it'll tie it together in a second here. Sure. But the other fee is for rating. So when you rate a post, you also you pay the same amount. You pay a thousandth of a booth, about a buck thirty. Right? For example, Mike takes the Cure DAO, you know, a Cure DAO owned wallet, and makes a post: "Broccoli cures cancer on Idea Market," and you know that costs him a buck thirty. And then if he gets 10 people to rate it, then he earns 10 times a buck 30 in rating fees. So if you can make some important breakthrough that stirs up some controversy and gets some big names to spread it around, you can make potentially a lot of money in rating fees. The rating fees go to uh, the post owner. The post is an NFT, so you can actually sell it to someone else. And then the new owner receives the rating fees during the term of their ownership. If CureDAO gets the first, you know, 200 people to rate it and they get 0.2 ETH or about $260, I guess. And let's say some big influencer like Balaji sees the potential of this post to really stir up some cultural impact. And he says, you know what? I'll pay $2,000 for that NFT. And then so CureDAO gets $2,260, Balaji gets the NFT, and then Balaji does a publicity campaign around it and gets 50,000 more people to rate it. Then he gets 50 ETH, he gets 50,000 times a buck 30 in rating fees. And at the same time, he owns the NFT, which he can resell if he wants or as a cultural artifact or something like that. There are these monetization features built in where every post is potentially an income stream. And the posts are also networked together through citations. Like when you're rating a post, you can cite another post to explain your reasoning. So what ends up happening is it feels like a social network, but it gets it builds into a knowledge gap, like Wikipedia or like Rome Research. And the more important topics that keep getting referred to again repeatedly end up being used as citations in various arguments. I might want to cite broccoli cures cancer in any number of conversations and contexts. And the more different places where that post shows up, the more people will see it, the more people will rate it, and the more income from rating fees I'll get. So it's kind of like owning land in a conversation that just continues indefinitely. So there's kind of a lot of income potential, assuming a widespread adoption, of course. And that's where IMO comes in. IMO right now 
is used to basically vote for which users you want to decide which posts are important. So you can stake IMO on a user. And what that does is when that user rates a post, it will increase that post's visibility. So if I put 10,000 IMO on Mike Sin, whenever Mike Sin rates a post, either low or high, it doesn't matter, that post visibility will increase by 10,000 points, basically. And so what you end up having is curation by the most trusted users on the platform. And when I stake that money, there's no risk of losing it. Mike doesn't have access to it. He can't withdraw it or spend it. And if I decide I don't trust Mike anymore, then I can take that stake back and put it somewhere else or even put it on myself. It's really just kind of like an electoral mechanism to decide whose opinions on what's important should count the most. So it's kind of a way of curating without any centralized authority taking control of it. Wow, that's interesting. So in terms of like how that might work for CureDAO or what does CureDAO currently do for its tokenomics, if you want to share? Yes. So currently we're just like have a decentralized autonomous organization whereby contributors currently earn 46 of these kind of founders tokens for contributions to the project. But then ultimately the thing that we're working on is creating this SDK, which allows easy shareability between different digital health applications or services, and then facilitating through a DCI exchange the sale of individual data sets and buy from the data owner who created them by recording their symptoms and treatments, et cetera, to potential data buyers who may be pharma or insurance companies. Really quick, when you said data sets, are you saying an individual's data set or the set of data from an aggregated group of people a set of data from an individual so it's kind of like uniswap but for health data and then in order to incentivize and make it easy for people to extract their data from different applications the individual like the application that installs the sdk within their app and then has this embeddable exchange within their app is able to set some transaction tax or fee, like a half a percent or whatever, which is typical of DeFi exchanges. And then the individual gets 99% or whatever of the transaction cost. And then the app that integrates the SDK in the exchange into their app receives a half a percent or whatever they said. So people are different. There's a lot of apps. They're incentivized to minimize their transaction fees, but there is a like a cost overhead to integrating it. And then again, there's like the prisoner's dilemma of making your data, making it easy for people to extract data from your app that we're hoping that this will be adequate in overcoming. Is there like a data standard that's being used for the data sets aggregated for individuals? Is it like HL7, Fire type of? Yes. So there's a ton. That, I mean, they've been trying to like force everyone to adopt a single standard for decades. And I've been working with other developers and other database schema and stuff. And it's like really hard to get even two people to agree on what the optimal data standard is. And HL7 and Fire and stuff, I find them like very overcomplicated. Um, it's highly nested data. So if you're going to be combining data to apply machine learning to them, you have to do a ton of transformations and stuff to mm. get into a flat format. So instead of trying to force everyone to adopt the same format, we're focusing on making these data transformation modules, which will allow anyone to specify the format when they're like submitting data into the API and or specify the format that they desire when requesting data from the API. So then you don't force anyone to modify their existing software architecture, which can be very expensive. And then just enable like a DeFi exchange will let you swap different tokens for each other. You can just swap and specify what kind of output format you desire whenever you're making a request to the API. And then anybody would be able to make their own uh, transformer. So then it would be available to everyone. So then you don't have to have Right now, every, you have a bunch of these closed source projects, like everyone's like that wants to use the Fitbit API, for instance, has to implement their own transformer to get it converted into their own format of whatever they, they normally store it as. And so we want to kind of reduce the duplication of effort by making it possible to have plugins that for different data transformer modules. 
Interesting. Yeah, I wasn't aware of how much transformation is required for taking HL7 data and using machine learning for applying machine learning for them. I'm sure it's more complicated. HL, HL7 is not like particularly bad, but like the majority of data is not in HL, uh, HL7. And it's not in Fire, and so I, Fire, I guess, has been is the replacement standard for HL7 because um, HL7 is the result of like a community negotiation, like uh, designed by committee, often creates like monstrous complexity designed to handle every possible scenario in the world. Maybe we yeah. should make a post on Idea Market saying Fire is the best data standard for healthcare, and see if people yeah. agree or disagree, and, and how far yeah. to take that. Uh, I could talk to you guys forever about this stuff. I want to kind of ask a few questions to wrap it up and kind of give you a chance and opportunity to give any final takeaways to the audience as well. But so what's the culture like at both CureDAO and Idea Market? I'm sure you guys have people that you work with on a daily basis and probably remote too, but what's your sense of the culture with your teams? Mike Elias can go first. Yeah, I built Idea Market or started it out of a frustration at this huge gap between the best information on the internet and common knowledge. What, you know, translated that means I'm a big fan of crackpots and I think a lot of them deserve to be vindicated. I think there's a lot of wonderful low hanging fruit, single sentences worth of information that can save millions of lives or similar things of that magnitude. And I suspect that a lot of our biggest scourges are not really problems of lack of knowledge but misplaced trust and credibility. It's not that we don't possess answers to many of our major challenges, it's that we're not using them. So Idea Market's culture and community is very much open to the fringe and craziness. And we like taking a long shot because one long shot that really works out is gonna be worth looking silly 99 other times. Fair enough, yeah. Mike's in. Yeah, so it's a bunch of great people. Has there's no significant financial incentive to participating currently. It's a lot of people that are motivated just by either reducing suffering or extending longevity. So it's kind of like a different factions. I've been kind of miserable all my life and, <laughs> and haven't had a great appreciation of just existence for its sake. So there's a lot of communities like around chronic disease and stuff, but I found that people among the longevity community, they're generally um, extremely healthy and super high functioning, which is why they want to live forever. So they seem to <laughs> get a lot more stuff done. And so, yeah, I've been working with whoever we all have the same goal, basically, which is to drive down the cost of this research, which is absurd at this point, and kind of overcome all of these disincentives to progress. So yeah, I'm very grateful to all the organizations and individuals who are participating, and to Mike for all the great work he's doing, and for working with CareDAO and allowing us to use his, his platform to, to try to infer some degree of causality for for these studies as it's really hard to determine if there's a plausible mechanism of action for a given factor on an outcome with algorithms. And you kind of need aggregated human wisdom to do that. And I see that is a great idea market as a great means of kind of aggregating this intrinsically and necessarily human knowledge. Yeah, no, totally. I'm with you. I think that being open source, so CureDAO is an open source project. I think that really as part of the culture too. Idea Market also open source? Is it sort of? Yeah, no, it's all open. The smart contracts are open source. Everything that we can possibly open source is open source. Uh, we want the data that gets created through all these opinions be av available to anyone to use and interpret and analyze how they can imagine doing so. Sure, and I just wanted to also thank a Health Unchained community member, Tristan. That's kind of how we actually met all of us through the research collective. So I appreciate Tristan's connection there. You know, very much part of the biohacking community. And there's a lot going on with biohacking these days too, which is really exciting. I think that's individual scientists, community research scientists, our citizen scientists are going to be, I think, the future. So it's really exciting. You were going to say something, Sin? Or? I was just saying, yeah, he's an amazing dude. Yeah, thank yeah. you. So I got just a couple more questions. One is... Do you have any open positions for people listening that might or any ways for them to connect with you or participate? How would you suggest they get involved? 
I'd be happy to personally onboard anyone. I know you mentioned that not everyone listening may be a deep crypto head, but I'm happy to sit on the phone and walk people through it. It's not actually very difficult. It's just a little intimidating if you've never used MetaMask. But uh, please reach out on, on Twitter, twitter.com slash HarmonyLion1 is my personal or IdeaMarket underscore IO is IdeaMarket. And uh, yeah, I'd be happy to help anyone get, up, get set up and, and experiment and playing with IdeaMarket. And yeah, we're working on a ton of different projects. So yeah, any developers are great, greatly appreciated. And then we're also have some kind of like these other laboratories, we call them because so we want to be data driven. And like we have a data lab focused on data analysis development lab focused on development and community and other aspects of the organization. So we definitely need help coordinating those different laboratories. So anybody that is just interested generally, uh, it'd be great if they go to curedout.org and click the join us button and then tell us what they're interested in. And then we can get back to it and get started. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. All right. So question for both of you, and you can choose one or the other. So there's two questions. One is, can you tell me about a medical experience you've had or some sort of disease or acute injury you might have had taken to the hospital or something like that and how that's in, impacted the way you view the healthcare system? Or can you please explain an experience you've had with psychedelics and how that's impacted your life? Can you go first, Mike? You want me to go first? Yes. Oh, sure. Okay. So I'll take question number two. I only have done a drug that you'd consider psychedelic on a very, very few times in my life. And it was MDMA or ecstasy or like some, some cut of it. It was off the street. It wasn't like, you know, it was a pleasant experience, but it was actually very inferior to some experiences that I'd had just as a result of meditation and prayer. And the psychedelics kind of innovate really close to the hardware. They go way down in there and, and play with things. And for that reason, I'm a little scared of them. I'm a little scared of like if they become legal or widespread kind of in the way marijuana is, for example, corporate trickery might be embedded in them. Like this, this dimension brought to you by Pepsi. You know, like there's, there's really weird incentives and, and, and the users might be in a certain sense powerless to resist because it's like getting written directly into the neurons in a way that normal advertisements aren't. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a frontier that seems high risk and high reward. Like I understand that, you know, a lot of depressions and, and various mental issues can be drastically improved with that, but it, it, all, it seems like the nuclear option and would and I encourage people to, to be optimistic about naturally achieved states of mind because there's, there's, there's really a lot there, plenty to go around. There's a lot of discussion about this on Twitter, actually, about you know, like some of the best antidepressants or some of the, some of the best technology to come out of the like, positive psychology movement is, might be 3,000 years old or 2,000 years old. In, you know, meditation. meditation. Yeah, no, I'm a fan of meditation. So yeah. I, I hear your, yeah. your point there. Yeah, that's interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you, Mr. Um, Sin. About the health question, I've kind of already went and went over that in our other interview. I have about many years of high-frequency longitudinal data publicly available on on all the symptoms and, and health problems that I have. So, could talk about you said publicly available, right? You mean yeah. Yeah. If you can send um, me a link, I'll include that in the show notes as well. So sorry to interrupt okay, you. But okay. Go ahead. <laughs> if you want of, me to, it's right? Kind of, it's kind of an it's it's available if you uh, look for it, but I don't know. It's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> so, but regarding the psychedelics, so I've, I've like taken probably every drug one can imagine to try to because I've had pretty severe depression most of my life and been very desperate to find a way to fix it. So kind of, but many psychedelics have had like temporary benefits, but it's, yeah, it's dietary changes and like removing things has had the greatest like kind of long-term benefits, but kind of one of the most powerful and kind of amazing things that, that I did before was, was DMT because that, that like destroyed my ego. Like I forgot 
who like most psychedelics do this to some extent, but like I totally forgot who I was. And like it kind of, you don't realize to what extent all of your thought processes and, and motivations are kind of like selfishly driven. And again, like the, I was talking about with the like selfish gene thing, like it made me appreciate kind of open source uh, uh, a lot more. And, and because you're going to like our, my, my goal, what I, what I say my goal is, and what I think philosophically, is that we should minimize, do whatever actions. The correct action is the one that minimizes the greatest suffering for the greatest amount or minimizes pleasure. But still, I am like selfishly motivated. Like I could, um, there's an infinite number of things I could be doing better in my life to, to achieve that. But because of this ego, I'm, I am driven to engage in in selfish acts instead of the optimal acts and it kind of and the unfortunate thing about the dmt it's like super short so it, it didn't this characteristic did not persist i think meditation if i could do it right and it was dedicated enough i think i could get maybe eventually achieve that state without anything and then hopefully and i'm sure it would probably be since uh like neurons that fire together wire together i'm sure like doing long-term meditation could produce a persistent state closer to what i would like to achieve but it kind of was nice just in that it showed me what's possible somehow yet yet i haven't been able to to achieve it yet i think uh, and i am not recommending that anyone take dmd it increases your blood pressure and uh, <laughs> that, for you should that, consult your doctor your dmt doctor about that definitely this podcast or yeah. no one on it condones any anything no drug use no financial investments i'm just covering my basis here as, as <laughs> we are all are all right um mikes thank you so much for sharing that and opening up with me i have a couple quick fun questions for you and then we'll wrap up for the interview thank you guys both so much so first is if you had to have a microchip implanted in your body, where would you prefer it to be implanted? What's the most amputatable part of my body? Let's see. Finger? Yeah. Absolutely. My brain. Brain? That's where my, <laughs> I have the greatest deficiency, I think, or most in need of computational resources. There what does go. this microchip do? Uh, does it? Uh, That's a good question. So uh, it's a pretty vague question. Is it so. And who is controlled by? Bill Gates. <laughs> I hope not. I have a lot of those with my vaccine. All right. <laughs> right. No, it's just a general question. People have different funny answers. So it's not specifically meant to do anything particular. Yeah, it could be like an RFID. I think humans are like, we've been designed to survive in this world of scarcity and the zero sum game thing. And we're completely out of date as far as our motivations. And I think it would be great if we could kind of design the human brain to reward people for engaging in pro-social behaviors as opposed to gluttony, which was necessary for survival in the past. But now it's like very harmful and causes all these wars and over and obesity, et cetera. So that's, that's an that's interesting perspective. Better. Actually, so that's pretty interesting. Find a way to promote pro-social activity and reduce gluttony because in history, we've eaten so much to survive. That's when we get food, we just eat. That's just a really interesting perspective I haven't heard before. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Right. Favorite book. What's your favorite book, guys? Yeah, the one that comes to mind when people ask that question is Gandhi's autobiography. And there are a million reasons, but one of them, it's called the story of my experiments with truth. Gandhi was a man who treated truth as a force of nature, not merely a set of propositions or beliefs, something that operates objectively in the world. And by relating to it skillfully, you can actually use it as a force to achieve honest aims that are in alignment with truth. And that is how Gandhi kicked out the British Empire from India. He basically went about this scientifically and said, you know, truth is a force going through, you know, moving through everything. How can I raise the sails and power my ship and achieve an objective? And I think that's a really profound and concrete and faith enhancing way to relate to truth. And in this time when it seems like truth is very subjective or people disagree and there's no way to agree, blah, blah, blah. I think that kind of perspective is incredibly valuable 
because it helps us trust that truth is a real thing. It deserves our trust. It deserves our pursuit. It will win. And we have to trust that and, and bet on it. Bet really hard on it because it'll pay off. Good answer. Yeah, that's a great answer. Mine's kind of aligned in a weird way. So a lot of people kind of aspire to be like like Gandhi or Jesus or something, but are limited. So I think the selfish gene is kind of like the greatest paradigm shifting book that I've ever read before, because there's so many things I didn't understand why people would donate to like what more well-off, relatively well-off that live near them instead of like people who are like deathly ill in Africa or whatever, and uh, why racism exists or why speciesism exists. And then kind of initially there was the idea that evolution, the individual was the unit of evolution where things that characteristics that led to the survival of the individual would proliferate. But that didn't explain altruism, why people would sacrifice their lives in war for their country or why mothers would sacrifice their lives for their children. So they came up with group selection, but that didn't explain all the gluttony and stuff. So then popularized by Richard Dawkins in the selfish gene. There's a gene-centric view of evolution, whereby characteristics that increase the likelihood a given gene will be replicated, will proliferate throughout the species. And so so we've kind of been designed to engage in these ways, like with the gluttony and all, that would facilitate the replication of our genes. So we're kind of like automatons that are slaves to these, oh, like, little genes in our head, like pulling levers and stuff, forcing us to behave in ways which are often contradictory to like our rational value systems. So like lots of people recognize gluttony is bad or lying is bad or war is bad, but because we are kind of controlled by these emotions, which have pain and pleasure, which are a function of these genetic imperatives, we are not able to kind of like realize our aspirational ideals like Jesus or Gandhi or, or one of these people. Yeah. And then that goes back to the microchip question. So eventually when we have the technology and if we can accelerate research, I think that we'll be able to eventually control our motivational systems so that they are governed by our rational prefrontal cortex, as opposed to these like kind of genetic imperatives that designed us to survive in a world on the African savanna, completely like the world of abundance we live in today. But yeah, so I highly recommend the selfish gene to anyone. Thank you for that answer. I appreciate it. Um, guys, it's been a pleasure. Really great talking to you. If you have any other final takeaways you want to share with the audience, this is a good time to do so. We can start with either one of you. Mike Sin, because you're- Yeah, I'm just like incredibly grateful for all the uh, great work that you're doing and then all the work of everyone at, at CureDAO and Idea Market and all of our partner organizations, which are too long to list and I don't want to forget anybody, but thank you so much, Ray. It's been a pleasure. Sure. Yeah, I'll add to that. Thank you for having us on. And thank you, Mike, for all the fun, you know, cooperations that we're doing and planning and, and Tristan, of course, for setting this up. I wanted to add one little thing to my Gandhi spiel from earlier because I left out something really important. And what I said was, you know, truth is how Gandhi kicked the British out of India, but that's not actually a fair way to describe what he did. He actually convinced the British to leave. He convinced the British against their own cooperation. Like they didn't want to leave. Gandhi persuaded them without even their wanting to be persuaded. And I think there's some magic in there. I think there's something key in there because right now people are very difficult to persuade. And if there are permissionless ways to persuade that don't insult or shame or suppress or censor or overpower, that's a really important thing to, to familiarize ourselves with. So I just wanted to add that to the end Amazing. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Talk to you soon, I hope. Take care. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.